So this morning, we're in our second message in um, a series on the book of 1 Timothy. We'll be in 1 Timothy 1, starting at verse 12. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, um, I want to encourage you to um, open it up there. Um, We're going to have the verses on the screen behind me um, as we're going over them. Um, So that's where we're going to be at. One of my favorite book series is The Lord of the Rings. Um, how, many, how many of you have either read the book or watched the movie? How many, how many people are familiar with this? Okay, so we got, we got a pretty good crowd of people who are familiar with this. I read both The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings series, and I really enjoyed them. And uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, if you didn't know, the, the guy who wrote these stories was a devout Christian, and these books are totally filled with Christian imagery and allegory. It's kind of nice because when you're reading it and you see something that parallels with the spiritual realm and the story of Christ, you don't have to wonder if you're just kind of reading something into the story that's not there. Because Tolkien was a hardcore Christian and he intended these things to be read into his stories. There's a Christ figure. There's that ring that's symbolic of sin. And there's this long journey that is symbolic of life's long journey. There's all sorts of things. Well, part of what makes this story so vibrant is the relationship with Sam, between Samwise and Frodo, if you remember. For those who aren't familiar with the story, Frodo is on this long journey, and he's got this magical ring, and he's on a quest to destroy the ring at a faraway mountain, which is the only place on earth where it can be destroyed. And Samwise, his friend, is along with him for this journey. And Samwise experiences some struggles too, but the story is mostly about Frodo's difficulties. Samwise, his friend, is there to help him, to keep him encouraged, and to help keep him making good choices. Well, near the end of the story, Frodo is making his way up that mountain, and he he hopes to once and for all destroy the ring. And he's struggling because he's injured, and as he gets you know, closer to the mountain, the ring gets heavier and heavier around, in this necklace around his neck. And here is a quote that describes it from the book. Frodo groaned, but with a great effort of will, he staggered up, and then he fell on his knees again. He raised his eyes to the dark slopes of Mount Doom towering above him, and then pitifully, he began to crawl forward on his hands. Sam looked at him and he wept in his heart, but no tears came to his dry and stinging eyes. Come, Mr. Frodo, he cried. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you, and it as well. So up you get. Sam, Sam will give you a ride. Just tell him where to go and he'll go. As Frodo clung upon his back and arms loosely about his neck, legs clasped firmly under his arms, Sam staggered to his feet. And so Samwise begins to carry him. It is a beautiful scene where Samwise helps Frodo with a burden that only Frodo can carry, but Samwise plays a pivotal role. Do you ever feel like you are playing that role in someone's life? That you're the Samwise, helping them along on their journey. 
encouraging them to take the right steps, fighting for what's right and what's good and what's best for their lives. Well, that's what we're going to be talking about today. Most of us can identify someone or maybe a few people where we're trying to be a positive spiritual influence in their life. We're in 1 Timothy, and in this book, Paul, an experienced missionary and church leader, is giving some instructions to Timothy, who is a less experienced pastor. Timothy is serving in Ephesus for the time, and Ephesus, you should know, is a large city. It's, it's, it's a, it's a popular, popular, populated city, and it's, it's well-known in, in the empire. And there would have been a lot of people around. With all those people and the gospel spreading like it had been, it was probably a fairly sizable church, or at least a sizable church network. They had ministries to the poor, they had various levels of leadership, and like all good churches, they had problems. Well, in this letter, Paul, he hasn't gone into it yet, but he's got a lot of instructions for Timothy, and he even calls them commands. And he tells Timothy to deliver these commands to the church at Ephesus. He, Paul, Paul is about to tell P- Timothy to tell other people how to dress, how to pick your leaders, what to eat and what to drink, how to treat older people, how to treat younger people, how, to, how slaves and masters should relate to each other. He's got commands for the rich and commands for the poor. Paul is experienced. He knows this is not going to be easy. It's, a, it's difficult to deliver commands. It's difficult to lead people, especially if you care for their well-being. In fact, he says it's going to be like a battle. But it's a battle that Timothy must fight, and he must fight well. Now, if you're, if you're listening to this, you probably think the, the book of Timothy might, you know, sounds like it's a book for pastors. And it is. There's a lot of relevant stuff in here for pastors, But what you need to realize is that if you are a Christian, you are a priest. If you are a Christian, you are a priest. In 1 Peter 2, Peter speaking to the church says this, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He calls the entire church a priesthood. You see, the role of a priest in the Old Testament was to be a mediator between God and the people. If you wanted to ask God for something, you would go to the priest and say, hey priest, I was hoping you could maybe ask God to, you know, forgive me for this one thing I did. And, you know, hey, while you're in there, could you uh, maybe ask him to heal my broken, my infected leg, you know, I'd I, I would really appreciate that. And so the priest would go in and pray to God, and they would come out and deliver the report, God forgives you, um, I asked about the leg, um, you know, we'll see about that. You know, that, that's how it worked. Not exactly, um, it wasn't exactly, that, that's the gist, okay? So, th- so you never went to God directly. You couldn't go to God directly. You had this middleman, the priest, who helped you converse with God because you didn't know the rules and stipulations for holiness. And if you were to go to God directly, you'd be risking offending him by, by not following the rules for holiness. You could bring judgment on yourself by doing that. Well, what happened at the cross is that Jesus tore down this holiness barrier between God and man. If you remember from the accounts from the, from the crucifixion, that curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. It was torn into two pieces. That was symbolic No longer did you have to ask the priest to go behind the curtain for you. You 
if you've received the forgiveness of your sin that comes through the cross of Jesus Christ, you are holy for the purposes of conversing with God. You can go to him directly. You have this direct relationship with God. No more middleman. And if you take this further and apply it to your life, if you have received the forgiveness of of your sins and you have an active relationship with Jesus Christ, you become the middleman for others. Do you see how that works? You become the middleman for others. You become a priest. You become a way for people to connect with God. By the way, I've just taught you some theology. If you've ever wanted to know theology, this is called the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. So now you know theology. There you go. All right. So so if you're a Christian, then you are the middleman. You are a priest, a minister, and this book applies to you because, because you, like we've talked about before, there are people in your life who you're trying to influence for Christ. You're wanting to develop the, the likeness of Christ in their lives. You're hoping and, and encouraging them to come and connect to Christ for themselves so that they can experience the blessings that you have experienced. And Paul says in this passage that the activity of influencing and leading others toward Christ It's like a battle. Parents, you are fighting a battle for your kids. Brothers and sisters, you are fighting a battle for your family members. If you are serving in a ministry, you are fighting a battle for the hearts and minds of of the people you are seeking to serve. Even on the welcome team, you are fighting a battle for the open hearts and minds of the people who come through our doors. Sometimes it is tough to convince people that someone, that, that, tough to convince people that God loves them and that he cares about them, that, that, that they should come in here with an open heart for what God wants to do in their lives. It's, sometimes it's tough. You know, but if you're on the welcome team, you, you are in a battle for that. And you have weapons, smiles, handshakes, conversations. Those are your weapons. And it's a battle for the open hearts of the minds of the people who are coming through our doors. So who is it for you? Who are those loved ones? Those ones you are serving? In whose life are you fighting a spiritual battle? Does it feel like a battle? Sometimes it feels like a battle, doesn't it? It is a battle. In the passage we're going to look at today, I've identified five principles that Paul draws out for us for fighting this battle well. The first principle is to fight these, bat- to fight these spiritual battles well is to show mercy like God shows mercy. Show mercy like God shows mercy. So Paul starts off our passage with a mini story. He retells his personal story of coming into relationship with Jesus Actually, we're not to that passage yet. Could we put it down? Everybody's looking on the screen behind me, and I'm, I'm, I want you to look here. I want you to listen to what I'm saying, not read that. You can't, you can't do two things at once, right? <laughs> All right, so, so Paul starts off. He's got a mini story. You probably read a little bit of it already. Um, and he retells his personal story of coming into faith with Jesus. In our culture today, we tell lots of stories, and most of our stories are for the purpose of entertainment. Well, in the ancient Near East, stories had a little bit of a different purpose. I mean, they, they had stories for entertainment, but most of the time, their stories were a teaching tool. You told stories to make a point. And if you go through the Bible and you read these stories, and you, ask, you, you should ask yourself, what is the point? 
Sometimes there's multiple points. And the stories of people's experiences with God are retold for us in the Bible to make a point about God or about life. So ask yourself, what's the point of this story? So Paul has a point with his, his mini-story here in this section. In the section we covered last week, Paul talked about um, these blasphemers, about rejecting these blasphemers. Blasphemy um, is a Jewish term. It's a technical term referring to someone who is talking or teaching things that aren't true about God. And in this section, he basically says to Timothy, you know, Timothy, I used to be a blasphemer. Let's read what he says, starting at verse 12. Here we go. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The principle here is that God shows mercy and grace to blasphemers. And so Timothy should be ready to show mercy to blasphemers. Now, what does this mean? If you remember from last week, Paul isn't taking it easy on the blasphemers. He says it's wrong. He says, Timothy, tell them not to do it anymore. He says, Timothy, the main reason you're even there is to put the kibosh on the blasphemers. That's what you're there for. So what does mercy mean then in the midst of that? Showing mercy means that you are quick to run to forgiveness instead of being quick to run to judgment. But it does not mean saying that bad stuff is just okay. Mercy doesn't mean you spit in God's face and he says, it's okay, there's no punishment for that. Mercy means you come to God and you apologize for the things you've done wrong and there's a punishment for the things you've done wrong and God decides to forgive you so you don't have to experience the punishment. That's mercy and grace. God's grace doesn't mean that he never executes judgment or that he never calls a lie a lie. God's grace means that he's ready to forgive the repentant and the remorseful. That's what it means to show mercy like God shows mercy. Additionally, God's mercy isn't ready to just just forgive a proverbial slap in the face. It's a hundred slaps. It's a thousand punches, beatings, curses, murders. Paul says that he was a blasphemer, which which it's hard to give you the background for this, but that is a major sin for the Jews. For the Jewish people, that is a major sin. He says, I was a violent man. He persecuted Christians. He sought out innocent people and punished them. He murdered them. But he says, I was shown mercy. The grace of the Lord was poured out on me abundantly. So you, when you are serving people and loving them, family members, children, Can you withhold judgment from the repentant? You may have a right to execute judgment, to punish, to let them feel the consequences for their actions. You have that right. But can you withhold it when they are repentant? As Jesus teaches us, be merciful just as your heavenly Father is merciful. This is how we fight these battles. The first principle is mercy. The second principle for fighting these battles is to have patience like God has patience. Have patience like God has patience. You might be thinking, how often is the person repentant? 
How often does that happen? You know, they're rarely repentant. What do you, what do, you do when they're not repentant? What do, what do you do when they're not remorseful? They just go on injuring others, injuring themselves. What do you do then? Paul's testimony lesson isn't finished. Verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. The big word here is patience. And not just patience, immense patience. Here's the cue that Paul is trying to say something through this story. He says, Christ Jesus displayed his immense patience as an example. As an example. Now think about this. Who is Christ showing the patience as an example for? Who's the example for? Is it for the people who are receiving the mercy? Do they need patience? Think about that. Who's the example for? No, it's not for them. It's for the people who are waiting for the broken ones to come around to repentance. It's for believers, he says, for people who have already received God's grace. You see, God is patient with messed up and broken people who oppose and rebel him. He loves them, and so he's patient with them. And Paul says his patience is an example for those of us who are trying to influence them for Christ. By the way, I want to make a disclaimer here. This is an important disclaimer This is not to say the believers are not broken and messed up too. We're broken and messed up. Um, God continues his grace and his patience with us who have acknowledged how messed up we are and how we need him. His grace and his patience, they keep coming. But right now we're talking about people who don't want to have anything to do with God, who are actively seeking to be their own boss in life, who have rejected his leadership in their lives. It's for those people who we are to be patient with. We are to be patient like God. In the midst of battle, you can sometimes forget what you're fighting for, right? You're in the midst of it, you know, you forget, what is this all about? I was recently reading some of the stories surrounding King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table, and one of their battles illustrates this principle. After the young Arthur pulls the sword out of the stone, he is pronounced King of Britain, And there were 11 kings who were also in the kingdom, and they didn't want Arthur to be king over them. And so they joined together, joined forces, and went to battle against Arthur and the the people who were with him. The forces meet in battle, and the battle is described as really vicious, you know, just really um, both sides losing a lot of people. And what's interesting is that as, you know, both sides are, you know, fighting, they're, they're, they're described as both fighting really, really well. And the, the knights on both sides are fighting valiantly. It's not just the good guys. The good guys and the bad guys, great fighters. And each of the sides begins to acknowledge the impressive skills of their opponents. And the story begins to be about how great of fighters they all are and less about who's winning and losing. And at one point, these two kings who are helping Arthur, they're on his side, and they notice this, and they start praising their enemies, saying, wow, you got to give it to them, Arthur. You know, they, they are some of the best fighting men, knights of the greatest courage that we ever saw or heard of. They are really incredible knights. And it's a funny moment, because Arthur responds, 
Even so, do not expect me to love them. It is their intention to destroy me. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's like, oh yeah, that's right. That's what this battle is about. In the heat of battle, we can sometimes forget what the battle, what, what the purpose is behind the battle. Why, where it all started, why we're fighting to begin with. Battles are not easy. We're going to get injured. When you're a parent waging war for your son or daughter, when you're a husband uh, or wife waging war for your marriage, when you are trying to influence people for Jesus, you are going to get injured. People will say things that hurt. They will ignore your love. They will walk all over your generosity. When these things happen and the battle is rough, you need to apply our third principle here. You need to recall your commission. You need to recall your commission. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. He says, Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience. When things get rough, you have to go back to the beginning and ask yourself, why are you in this to begin with? What's your commission? What's your purpose and calling? When Paul mentions these prophecies, he's referring to Timothy's commissioning for ministry. When the elders of the church come and they laid hands on him and they prophesied about what he was supposed to do with his service in ministry. For Christians, we have a common commission. I hope you know this. We, and we need to come back frequently in the midst of battle to remind ourselves of our common commission. Here it is. It's called the Great Commission. And then Jesus came to them and said, is out of Matthew 28. He came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That is our common commission. And sometimes individually you will have a a commission that's specific to you. When the going gets tough and the messes get confusing, go back to the beginning and ask yourself, why am I here in the first place? Usually, if you think through that carefully, usually it is linked with a command of God. Parents, you need to raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You have a commission. The scriptures say, if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides. You have a commission. What do the scriptures say about what you are supposed to do? What did he really tell you to do? Pay careful attention to the words. Sometimes we can confuse our man-made plans with God's original commission, his original instructions. Our fourth principle for fighting these battles is that we need to hold on to faith. We need to hold on to faith. Sometimes you've worked and worked and you're just not seeing the results that you'd like to see. And part of the problem lies in the fact that spiritual battles are all about winning something in the spiritual realm, but we can't, we can't see the spiritual realm. Every once in a while we get a glimpse outwardly of, what's, of what is happening inwardly in someone's life. Sometimes we get that glimpse of what is happening inside. Most of the time, we can't see what's happening on the inside, can we? Paul tells Timothy to hold on to faith. 
You know how a caterpillar can turn into a butterfly? You know, it's, it's pretty cool. And when you see it on uh, Animal Planet or uh, the Discovery Channel, they do a time lapse. So it happens really quickly. And uh, we're all like, cool, look how the caterpillar turns into a butterfly, just like that, pretty cool. But the time lapse camera doesn't give us an appreciation for how long such a huge transformation, how long it takes for that transformation to take place. It's not like that, like we see it. Well, people are like that. Sometimes it's going to take a long string of investing in someone, loving them, encouraging them, and you're going to see no progress. But one day, then one day, the transformation happened, and, and, and everyone's like, wow, where did that come from? It's beautiful. But it, it doesn't happen without that long string of pre-investment. Hold on to faith. Have faith to be able to see with your spirit what you can't see with your eyes. Paul also tells us that to fight these battles well, we need to hold on to a good conscience. We need to hold on to a good conscience. Sometimes in a battle, doubt slips in. And you begin to wonder if you're doing the right things. You see someone take a step backwards. Maybe you start to get some criticisms. You feel like you haven't seen a glimpse of progress in a long time. You're trying to hold on to faith, but it's difficult, especially with these criticisms, right? What's difficult about criticisms, you know, maybe they're coming from, from uh, the people you're trying to influence. Maybe they're coming from people outside, you know, but you've got these criticisms, and they're right in front of your face. And what's difficult about them as Christians is that we know we're not perfect people. <laughs> so it's very possible that the criticisms are valid, Right? And so the Bible says that it's a good, good wisdom to listen to your critics, right? It's good wisdom. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about this. But if you try to listen to your, to your critics and you're trying to listen to God and you're trying to reason through what makes the most sense, you know that it's easy to just get stuck and confused. There's an Aesop's fable that goes something like this. A man and his son were once going with their donkey to market. And as they were walking along, a countryman passed them. You fools, what is a donkey for but to ride upon? So the man put the boy on the donkey and they went on their way. But soon they passed a group of men, one of whom said, "See uh, see that lazy youngster? He lets his father walk while he rides. So the man ordered his boy to get off, and he got on himself. But they hadn't gone far when they passed two women, one of whom said to the other, shame on that lazy slob to let his poor little son trudge along. Well, the man didn't know what to do, but at last he took the boy up in front of him on the donkey. And by this time they had come to the town, and the passerbyers, you know, they began to jeer and to point at him. And the man stopped and asked what they were laughing at. And the men said, aren't you ashamed of yourself for overloading that poor donkey of yours? You and your hulking son? So the man and the boy got off and they tried to think what to do. They thought and they thought. Till at last they cut down a pole, tied the donkey's feet to it and raised the pole and the donkey to their shoulders. They went along listening to the laughter of all who met them until they came to the market bridge. When the donkey getting one of his feet loose 
kicked out and caused the boy to drop his end of the pole. The struggle, in the struggle, the donkey fell over the bridge. His four feet were tied together and he drowned in the river. In any endeavor, there's going to be a lot of options about how to go about something. And the only option you don't have is the option of doing all of them. Remember, it's your commission, not their commission. It's your decision, not their decision. You are responsible, they aren't responsible. When you don't know what to do, get some wisdom and counsel from others. Listen to your critics for what you can learn from them. Pray, pray, pray. But at the end of the day, make a decision where you can, you can keep a good conscience before God. Hold on to a good conscience. Don't go with, you know, this makes me feel good, so I'm going to go with this. Feelings can often be deceptive. When Paul says hold on to a good conscience, he's talking about a spiritual dynamic between you and God where you sense peace in your spirit as you pray about it before God. Not necessarily peaceful emotions, mind you. You may feel physical sensations of fear, but in your spirit, in your heart of hearts, there's this sense of peace. This is right. This is good. And if you have done your due diligence for searching out what is right and what is good, then you can make a decision holding on to a good conscience. The problem is that many people skip this due diligence part, making important decisions haphazardly without consulting God in prayer. And Paul tells us what happens when we do that. In verse 18, he says, hold on to a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwrecked with regards to the faith. Hold on to a good conscience, that spiritual peace that you are following God to the best of your ability. And if God says something needs to change, then change that. But otherwise, hold on to a good conscience. It will protect you from shipwreck. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says this to the church. Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. There's a spiritual battle going on for the lives of the people you love. And we don't fight this battle with physical weapons. We don't even fight it with diplomacy and things like that. We have things like prayer and love, the scriptures and truth and faith. Those are our weapons. Our weapons are different, and we even go about this whole thing differently. In a typical war, you are trying to conquer the other side, to control it. But Jesus says that's not the way it's supposed to be with us as we relate to each other and with the world. This is what he says. Take a look at this. This is what he says. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is how Jesus fought his battles for influence over us. He fought them from a servant's position. Instead of seeking to punish us, For our sins, he showed us mercy. Instead of cutting us off when we took too long to wake up and realize our need for him, he had patience. 
He waits and encourages. He speaks the truth in love. He looks past our outward faults to see the progress that is happening on the inside. He sacrifices so that we may receive. As we, as we serve our loved ones, let's remember that he has gone before us as an example of how to fight these battles well. Would you stand?